come to the 16th chapter, it's placed in the middle of the teaching of the Abrahamic covenant. It's like the great contrast between God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. In this chapter, we see a fresh testing of Abraham. And that test is all wrapped up in the suggestion of Sarai, in which she, it's, it's important to point out that Abraham is tested repeatedly at each point in the slice of life that we are treated to of Abraham, <clears throat> we read about God's testing of Abraham's life. First, his faith had to overcome the ties of nature. God called him to leave his country and his kindred and go to a place that he had no idea. He was not even told where to go. Then after he had arrived in Canaan, his faith was tried in the stress of circumstances because there was a terrible famine in the land. Next, he had to meet the trial respecting his nephew Lot and the whole thing about the stress and friction between the herdsmen that they had and, and when they, they had to finally decide what they were going to do. And Abraham said, you make the choice. I'll choose whatever you take, whatever's left. <clears throat> Later, there was the testing of Abraham's courage. Would he be willing to rescue selfish Lot when he is taken captive from a fierce king? And then after the stunning victory that Abraham and his forces had over the kings, he had to face the temptation of giving back the glory to God rather than keeping it for himself. And now we see the latest test. This test comes in the clothing of his own flesh, his wife. Will Abraham take the situation out of God's hand and act in the energy of the flesh with, represent, with, the, with reference to obtaining an, an heir? Now, while Abraham manifested varying degrees of success by his obedience or disobedience as we walk through his life, it's interesting that there is no place that he ever arrives where testing is no longer a part of his life. Uh, this is a critical thing to understand in our study of Abraham. For so it is with us. Abram was a friend of God, and yet, <clears throat> over and over again, he's tested. Now let me make it very clear. He is not tested so that God can find out whether he's going to be faithful or not. God knows him. God knows him better than he knows himself. And God knows you better than you know yourself. And that's why he allows testing in our life. That testing is so that we know who we are. Abraham had to find out who he was. These tests were made for him. These were the tools that were necessary in order to form him, shape him, carve him into the man of God that we see throughout the scripture. As someone has said, this is the kind of stuff that gives the Bible the ring of authenticity. It doesn't just tell us the good things. It doesn't just tell us of the great victories of Abraham and how powerful and godly he was. It also tells of how carnal and how weak and how like me he is. There are 
desperate people here facing a desperate situation. And they're responding to it just like desperate people do in desperate situations. There's no special class of these saints of old. They're just like us. Take a look at chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's life, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Cana, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness in the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord said, I will certainly multiply your offspring, so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are my God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Ber Berlohai Roy, for it stands between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. <coughs> And Abram called the name of his son, whom Agar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, looking at this particular passage of Scripture, may we not see it for a point of history, but may we see it from the point of our lives. As we consider the historic facts... May we look at our lives and may we carefully, consciously perceive your truth for us. And may it, be, may it move beyond the abstract and may it penetrate us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We read this story, and it seems so bizarre. A wife taking a servant and saying, here, have a child with her. <clears throat> it's foreign to our thinking and alien to our experience. 
But in that era, there was no greater sorrow, no greater heartbreak, no greater um, loss for an Oriental or Israelite woman than to be childless. I understand that today, even among the Arabs, the barren woman is exposed to shame and disgrace. In the light of this, Sarai's desperate suggestion and action are understandable. The steps that they take are the ones that were prescribed in the Code of Hammurabi. This law code was discovered in 1901. It's one of the oldest law codes in the world. There are 422 laws and amplifications of that. The Code of Hammurabi is basically... uh, um, Many, many say that the, the Ten Commandments come from a part of the Code of Hammurabi. I don't agree with that, but that's, that's the, the age of it. It puts it in that same ballpark. The law code stipulated that a wife, unable to bear a son for her husband, she could give him a servant that she chose in hopes that the servant would bear a son which is why the author of Genesis 16 makes it very clear that Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham. That's an important technicality. According to the law code, it was a wife's prerogative to give the specific maidservant... Look, fellas, I'm sure she was not the most gorgeous girl in the harem. She went out and said, he went out and Sarai went out and said, let's see. That's the ugliest woman I ever saw. Hagar, come here. I'm not downplaying Hagar, but the wife chose. It was the wife's choice. The purpose of this was twofold. First of all, it protected the wife. She was the undisputed mistress of the household, and when she chose that woman... That, that servant to bear the child, it was her choice. And second of all, it prevented the possibility of a divided inheritance. The child born of this arrangement was the wife's child. It was not the maidservant's child. It's interesting, you read, as I was reading through the law code of Hammurabi, one of the things that it said was, though, that, that the wife who chose the maidservant, that maidservant then became a wife of the husband. She could not be divorced. She could not be put out. She could not, there, there was, there, you, you, she was treated on an entirely different level than the, than the servants. When the master died, she was free. But that's not all we learn from the Code of Hammurabi. It specifies clearly that the maidservant who bore the child could not elevate herself in standing above the mistress, the wife. And if she did, she could be taken from her position and put in the lower place of a servant. She would still not be able to be sold. She couldn't be kicked out. She had to be taken care of 
until the master died, and then she was free. But she would be reduced in, in position. This is important because it, un, it helps us understand what happens here in the dialogue. Sarai had, had counted on Hagar to comply with a stipulation. In other words, she wanted Hagar to treat this whole affair as just a part of her job. You know, like a surrogate woman today. You know, a surrogate is supposed to take the implanting of the embryo and deliver the child and then carry the baby to term and deliver that child and then walk away and take her check and walk away. But Sarai and many people today forget that it's not always that simple. It's obvious something happened to Hagar. She was not about to just walk away. You see, Sarai had not bargained on the emotional upheaval that this new, this new situation was going to involve. Hagar, in absolute rebellion against the law, chose to elevate herself and say, this is my child and I'll be the mistress of the house. What seemed to Sarai as reasonable, logical, straightforward, a practical means of resolving a tough question, turns out to only compound the problem. And is still compounding it. One more legal stipulation comes into play here. When Sarai gave Hagar to Abraham, Hagar technically belonged to Abraham, to Abram. This helps us understand why Sarai means when she says to her husband, may, be the, may, be, may the wrong being done to me be on you. Literally what she's saying is, since Hagar belongs to you and she's treating me wrong, it's your responsibility to correct this problem. Abraham does the manly thing. He says, forget it, it's your problem, she's your wife, your woman, I'm getting through with her. I told you, Abraham is not always this great, saintly, wonderful, godly character that we want to put him in. Simply recognizing that Abraham has legal jurisdiction over Hagar... Some have said, really, what she is saying is, my wrong is your responsibility. Fix the problem. <laughs> she even appeals to God. She says, you know, at the end of that whole statement, she says, I'll appeal it. I'm, I'm appealing to God. May he judge between you and me. <sighs> Abraham gives, Sarai, gives Hagar back to Sarai, who uh, treats Hagar despicably. Makes life miserable for her. Reduces her from the position of wife to position of servant. Hagar splits the scene. Now, let me give you some biblical perspective. Let's go back to the beginning picture that we have of Abraham. 
In chapter 12, we find the living God calling Abram to leave his home, Ur of the Chaldeans, I alluded to that earlier, and travel to a land that God was going to show him. Abraham obeyed, at least in part. Uh, if you, He took along his father, and he took along his nephew, and he took along a lot of the garbage, but uh, he, he, in, in, in basic respects, he obeyed the, he obeyed the Lord. It must have been quite a sight. The scripture tells us they headed off not knowing where they were going. These were real authentic steps of faith in Abraham. Uh, He was trusting in a God he'd never seen. We know that Abraham came from a father that was was a heathen. And now... And that God had called to leave Ur, there was a promise made to Abraham. And that promise is reiterated a number of times once they reached the promised land. The promise was this, I will make you a great nation. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And God repeated this promise over and over again. It became apparent that it all hinged upon Abraham and Sarai bringing forth an heir, a seed, a child, a son. And herein lies the problem. When Abraham first received the call and the the promise, he was about 75. Sarai wasn't much younger. Now when this this incident happens in chapter 16, Abraham is about 86 which means that by this time, 10 years have passed. 10 years have slipped by. 10 years of waiting for that that promised seed. 10 years to see God's plan begin to come to fruition. 10 years. Long. Tiresome. Disappointing years. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had had borne him no children. That sets the stage for everything that follows. But it's interesting that Sarai's being barren is not the real problem. We know from chapter 15 that the real problem is the delay of the promise. Let me go back and read chapter 15. This is the chapter that just precedes this. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall be your offspring. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. I guess we could say the real problem in chapter 16 is the delay of the promise is the apparent failure of God to keep his word. 
The second verse, Sarah interprets the, the events. He says, the Lord has kept me from bearing a child. Brothers and sisters, we often do that same thing. We interpret God's plan as somehow keeping us from having what we should have. That somehow God is this big ugly bully in the sky waiting for us to, to really want something and then him to say, not for you. That somehow God wants to withhold from us the very best. And that's a lie. God wants for us the absolute best in the world. She feels like somehow the Lord has taken away what he'd promised. Somehow he's not going to give what he himself has said his plan was for them. She sees the circumstances as God somehow trying to keep the best from her. Is that not the same context that we're called to live by faith in? We too face delay. We live in the apparent failure of a promise that Jesus made that he was going to return and establish the kingdom. Behold, I come quickly, he told John 2,000 years ago. When I started in the ministry, I wanted to get in the ministry right away because I knew Jesus was coming back. And if I didn't hurry up and get going, I'd never have a chance to minister for him. And here I am, old and decrepit. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. You pot calling the kettle black again. But, <laughs> but here I am, and we're looking at, 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 a, at, a, at, a, at a cataclysmic re uh, election in this country. Where is the uh, promise of his coming? I'm going to give you this for free. This is not in my notes. I read an article this week. My wife actually read it to me from a theology professor at Bethel. And he said, you know, the, re the, 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 the truth of the matter is we have a very, the candidates we have today are less than what we'd want on either side. I don't care which side you're on. Both of them have significant moral weaknesses. And he said, I want you to consider this is the judgment of God on America. The fact that that's all we have. And that's not a bad thing. The body of Christ, we should say, wonderful judgment is beginning. God is going to bring healing. That's free. I didn't charge you nothing for that. This story here tells us that in times of deep personal pain, when we're disappointed or afraid, there's a great propensity toward faltering in our faith. Abram, the father of the faith, 
stumbled over himself, stumbled over his desire to fulfill God's promise, faltering in faith. When we falter in faith, we inevitably move toward the energy of the flesh. I see five points in this chapter. Five points of failure. And those same five points of failure are often characterized in the lives of believers today. The first one is, there's no indication anywhere that Abraham and Sarah brought this petition before the Lord in prayer. They didn't come and say, you know, Lord, the code of Hammurabi says that Sarai can, can, can give me Hagar and, 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 and we can raise a child from her and it'll be our child. No place that Scripture ever talks about that. Sarai listens to her emotions. Abram listens to Sarai, and Hagar gets caught in the dawn draft. And it creates chaos. Nobody took the time to pray. When prayer is no longer the natural reflex of our heart, it's the unmistakable evidence that we are faltering in faith. One writer said that when we fail to pray, where in practice, unbelievers. I think there's truth to that. We slip into that mode of self-sufficiency. Somehow, I'm a pretty smart fella. I can figure out how to fix God's problem here. You know, God really is pretty inept. He needs me to help him. Isn't that what they're saying? Remember the thing that the disciples asked Jesus about most of the time? Remember when, when, when Jesus is praying, they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray like that? You know why they asked that? Because they watched every facet of Jesus' life and his, his, his reflex to every problem was prayer. Seeking God's face, seeking his Father's face, he found sustenance, he found solace, he found strength in prayer. I admit, I'm not that great at it. I wish that I was a better prayer, prayer. I'm confident that the Lord wakes me up at five in the morning because if he doesn't, I won't pray. And I want to get even with Satan. He won't let me go back to sleep, so I pray to get even with Satan and figure he'll put me to sleep. Prayer is supposed to be the natural reflex of a healthy Christian. It's what we're supposed to do on a regular basis. The second point, the first point of failure is they don't pray. The second point of failure is they, they drew conclusions based on observable facts. 
They've been trying to get pregnant for 50 years, maybe more, before the promise. Then God gives them this great promise, and 10 years pass, and still nothing. They look at those. Each passing month made it more impossible. In fact, from the human perspective, looking at the realm of human experience, Sarah being pregnant is an impossibility. Sarah concluded that God had judged her as unfit somehow or else God had failed and there was just no other explanation for it. But therein God had not, she failed because God had not failed her. God had a plan and God wanted to push it all the way to the point where it was absolutely impossible that no one would consider it a possibility and then it would happen. And then it would be said, that was of God. How many times do we jump to those kind of conclusions? You're not healed because you didn't ask in faith. You're suffering because you're guilty of some terrible sin. You don't feel the presence of God because somehow you've displeased him. Number one, they didn't pray. Number two, they jumped to conclusions based on observable facts. Number three, they let the end justify the means. The end was a good thing. A child who begins the stream of history through which God is going to bless the whole world. They can excuse their actions by saying it's culturally acceptable. It's consistent with the law of the land. They base their ethical behavior on standards that were set by the world. But what we need to remember is what is in this present world many times is not what should be. What might be right in a rebellious world is not necessarily right before God. Slavery used to be legal. It didn't make it right. Abortion is legal. The murder of a young child doesn't make it right. Same-sex marriage might be legal. Doesn't make it right. I could go on from there, but those will be suffice. Remember that God's will is only accomplished by God's means. Often what is culturally, legally acceptable is really counterproductive to God and for God's purposes. First of all, they didn't pray. Second of all, they looked at the circumstances and determined that they should do something. And third, they end justified the means. And fourth, they were impatient with God. I could preach a lifetime on this one point from personal experience. I've spent a lot of my life being impatient. I am not the most patient person in the world. And if you don't believe me, next time you see my son, ask him. I am an impatient person. I have struggled with that my whole life. I'm more patient now than I've ever been. 
50, 60 years is a long time from Sarah and Abraham's perspective. That's true. But when we get impatient with what God is doing, what does it say about our faith? What does it say about our God? If we get impatient about God healing America, what does it say about our faith? What does it say about our perspective of God? Does it not imply that we doubt God knows as much as we know? Does it not imply that God is really not aware of all the factors? And does it not imply that we think God doesn't have our best interests at heart? And that leads us to the fifth point of failure, and that is they felt like they needed to help God out. Because that's what happens. We don't pray, and we base our conclusions on what we can see, and we let the end justify the means, and then we're impatient with God. It leads to us trying to help God out. I mean, we want to help God out. <clears throat> the living God needs no help. Let me say that again. The living God needs no help. I'm sure you've heard this, the expression, if not now, when? If not you, who? And while there is some truth to that phrase, because we've all been given gifts and talents and called to be faithful stewards of them, there's fundam something fundamentally wrong with the concept that God needs me. God does not need me. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need us. It was John the Baptist that said, God can make these stones children of Abraham. It is true, God brings us into a working relationship with him, and God does sovereignly choose to use us and let us have some uh, um, facet of a participation in the process with him. But he don't need us. Abraham and Sarai had too high a view of their responsibility and too low a view of who God was. Who God what God promised. And as a result, they took it upon themselves and this terrible burden of helping God. <clears throat> Let me give you an illustration. Listen, how, listen to how Christians, and I've heard this repeatedly on, 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 uh, on messages that I listen to. Listen to the verbs we use. Let us do all that we can to advance the kingdom of God. The good one at the offering. Let us give to establish the kingdom. 
But you go into the scriptures and you search what Jesus says. When Jesus says to us about speaking to the kingdom, these are the verbs that he uses to describe our relationship. He says that we can see the kingdom. We can receive the kingdom. We can enter the kingdom. We can proclaim the kingdom. We can seek first the kingdom. We can pray for the kingdom. But he never says, make the kingdom happen. He never says, advance the kingdom. He never says, usher in the kingdom. The idea is that the kingdom is like a seed. The farmer plants it. He can fertilize it. He can water it. But he can't make that seed grow. It's not he can go out there, he can dig around it, and he can keep looking at it to see if it's growing. He can maybe even go, oh, 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 and try to give it some resuscitation, but it won't happen. That seed has to grow as a result of God and God alone. It fascinates me when you take a, a seed of an oak tree and you plant it in the ground and you do everything, you fertilize it, and you water it, you put heat on it, and the darn thing won't grow. And yet the Lord will put one out there and the wind will blow and it'll knock that little, that little pine or that little uh, acorn down, it'll fall on the ground, and next thing you know, there's an oak tree growing out there. Nobody sat there and tended the soil and worked it all up and got it fertilized and watered and set and patted and warmed. God did it. The heaviness and the weariness and the anxiety and the drivenness and the amount of time spent on scheming and strategizing that marks this church today says that we still think God needs us. We're called to trust, cooperate, be available, discover, get in step with, enjoy what God is doing. I got no idea what's going to happen with this election. Even those who think they know don't know. But I'm here to tell you, it's exciting to me. Because I do believe I got a God. I got a God who said he's coming back. And when he comes back, I want to be there waiting for him. I want to be ready. And I want to take as many folk with me as I can. And I can't do that when I'm pounding the drum for Hillary or for Trump. I'm not against either one of them. Well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> That's probably not technically true.
but I am for Jesus Christ. And I'm willing to embrace whomever my God chooses. Because greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. And judgment begins with the house of God. And when we clean up our lives, we'll begin to influence the world. But until the church cleans itself, we continue to lose influence. We're faltering in our faith, just like Abraham and Sarah. That's a great lesson for us to learn. And I want you to challenge you in your own life. Wait on the Lord. You don't have to do anything to make God's plan come true. Got news for you. His plan's going to come. It may not be what we think. It may not be what we want. But I read through the book of Revelation and I understand that justice comes with judgment. There's not one of us here who doesn't deserve judgment. But we can rest in our judgment being fulfilled in the person of Christ. Count on that. Look to Jesus. He is our hope. He is our hope. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our day today. I pray you'll bless this time we've spent together. May it just not be words and rhetoric. But may we move from here with a fresh desire to embrace your plan, your time, the hope we have in Jesus. Father God, help us not to become discouraged by the world. Help us not to become discouraged by the events that we see around us. Help us not to manipulate or strive to manipulate the events. Help our reflex, Father. May our reflex in every event of life be to commune with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a song of response.
loving to serve the Lord and the grace that he gives. Uh, if you're a member, stick around for a few uh, for a few minutes for a meeting. We'll get started with that in just a moment. Thank you all. Have a good afternoon.